and welcome to Texas Family Doc Talk. I'm Jonathan Nelson with the Texas Academy of Family Physicians, coming to you from TAFP headquarters in Austin, Texas. This is our sixth episode of Texas Family Doc Talk, and we're recording this on Wednesday, May 20th. As of this morning, the CDC reports there are more than 1.5 million cases of COVID-19 throughout the country, and more than 90,000 people have died due to complications of the disease. As we all know, this pandemic has wreaked havoc on our frontline primary care physician practices. Primary care visits have dropped by half, putting practices in financial distress while patients put off the care they need to manage their chronic conditions. The Larry A. Green Center has been surveying primary care physicians each week since the middle of March to gauge the response and capacity of the country's primary care practices in dealing with the pandemic, and the responses have been dramatic. They found that almost half of primary care practices have laid off or furloughed employees. The survey revealed that a, quote, corrosive and debilitating new normal pervades primary care with 77% of respondents reporting severe or close to severe stress on their practices. A number of organizations, including AAFP and TAFP, are advocating for a change in the way we pay for care that could alleviate many of these problems. It's called prospective payment, and it would replace the current fee-for-service model. Instead of being paid for each service a physician performs, insurers public payers, and even individuals would pay a fixed fee to their physician, and for that, they would have access to a broad range of primary care services at no additional charge. But there's a lot of confusion about prospective payment among physicians as well as the general public, so today we're joined by Erica Swegler to help explain. Dr. Swegler is a family physician in a solo practice here in Austin. She's also a past president of TAFP, and she's currently serving her third year on the board of directors of the American Academy of Family Physicians. Hello, Dr. Swegler. Thank you for joining us. Hi, how are you? We're well, we're well. Thank you. We're also joined by TAFP CEO Tom Banning. Hey, Tom. Hey, Jonathan. Well, let's get right into this. Uh, Tom, I'm going to start with you. Um, what have you been hearing from our doctors lately, and uh, and what would you say the pandemic has exposed about our healthcare system? You know, Jonathan, I think that this is um, arguably the most difficult time that that practices have faced, and and certainly my career uh, at the academy, and that goes back a long way, from the managed care wars of the of the '90s to our liability crisis when practices were closing their door because they could either not afford um, nor access medical liability insurance. Um, and what this crisis is, is exposed is really the, the, the fragility of our primary care practices. Um, uh, it's also clearly shown that the critical importance of um, having those practices open and available, not only for screening and testing of COVID, but to manage the chronic problems that patients have, to manage the uh, mental health issues that are, are growing at this, this difficult time. Um, uh, and when you look at the need uh, and compare that to how screwed up our, um, our, our financial incentives are for, for supporting primary care, 
uh, it, it's really exposed just how much of a, a failure fee for service has been for for a lot of our practices. Um, and and we need to think beyond or sort of what comes next uh, on the other side of this this pandemic. And I, I think that there's some real exciting opportunities to really empower uh, family medicine and primary care in ways that that fee-for-service currently does not allow for. Dr. Swegler, you have a solo private practice. Um, what has this situation been like for you and your practice? The current situation is uh, really has us hanging on by our fingernails. And were it not for Medicare's prospective payment, uh, which we signed up for the first week it was available, which unfortunately they're now talking, they've closed the applications and they're talking about not renewing, I would probably not be in practice today. That Medicare prospective payment was the bridge that allowed me to get through till when in the second round of funding, I was able to secure a small business administration loan. Now the problem is I have surety for two months, maybe can eke out a third, and then I'm back to exactly the same situation. Even if my volume might be down only 40% instead of 60 or 70%, I still have the same problems as to how am I going to keep my doors open and service my patients. Have you had to furlough or lay off any employees at this point? Fortunately not, but that's partly because right at the beginning of this, I had I lost uh, one and a half full-time employee uh, equivalents to attrition. So one young lady that uh, got accepted to medical school that left early, early, <laughs> like end of uh, February, and then another lady that moved right at the end of March when it was obviously clear at that point that for three weeks our practice was already decimated that we weren't going to need to replace her. You've been a proponent of payment reform in healthcare for of for a long time. Um, I would say one of the most knowledgeable people in TAFP leadership uh, for years on on this subject. Would you give us your definition for prospective payment and talk about how uh, how this kind of a reform would affect your practice? Well, first of all, I would say it's going to, it would be um, absolutely fundamentally changing uh, and, and allow us to know that we had stability. The problem now is that your cash flow varies uh, intensely, um, and particularly in times like this, but otherwise there's always a seasonal variation in illness and things that are going on that makes the cash flow a problem for family physicians. And if you get paid a set amount for taking care of each of the members that you have uh, are providing care for under an insurance company, you can budget. You can do things that you would expect to do as a, say, salaried employee or anybody earning a routine paycheck. Uh, when you're doing fee-for-service, you, you can't count on that. And uh, paying prospectively would allow us, uh, depending on the model, would also finally give us the resources that we could do the care management and many of the things that we would like to do for the patients that we don't get the resources for, like incorporating behavior health. It is possible, but very challenging under the current payment system. Tom, jump in here. Um, you know, I think with a with a big payment change like this, with us talking about a, a huge change in the way we pay for care, I think there's a lot of physicians who are wary of that. Why should uh, should folks not be afraid of a move to prospective payment? Uh, yeah, so I think an easy way to think about prospective payment uh, is it's really a predetermined payment amount 
made in advance of a service being provided. So um, you take direct primary care as an example. Um, direct primary care physicians charge a monthly membership fee or a subscription fee that generally runs between $39 to $100 per member per month. Um, that gives them a budget to um, you know, know how much money is coming in uh, and, and make decisions about um, you know, how they want to uh, care for their patients, the services they want to provide. It really um, unburdens them from the, the third-party um, uh, uh, volume-driven fee-for-service model. Uh, you can also think of prospective payment as you know, what we're doing in Medicare Advantage right now. Um, uh, and what uh, some models like CPC Plus uh, 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 that CMS and CMMI have been piloting in Medicare are moving to. So, you know, for for our members, uh, yes, it's a change, but um, the amount of money that you're able to bring in to invest in services like um, care management, population health, telemedicine, you don't have to worry about finding a CPT code or a, a reimbursable event to generate revenue. Um, it's a it's a fixed uh, revenue stream that's that's coming in, and it allows doctors. It really unburdens doctors to care for the patients, uh, their patients, in the way that they want to, um, and in the manner that they want to. Dr. Swigler, how does prospective payment stack up against other kinds of payment reforms you've studied over the years? Well, I think the the key uh, is that versus some of the models that we've had in the past, like people in Texas have very bad taste in their mouth about something called HMO capitated care. But the issue with that is you can only identify overutilization in that model. What a properly done ACO does, which should be primary care led and primary care driven, it really allows you to hit that sweet spot of care where people get all and only the care that they need um, and you're held to quality outcomes. So it doesn't matter how you get there. What matters is what is the result for the patient? What is the clinical result in the end? And the HMO capitated model didn't take that into account. There are only two models that I've heard of during my time involved in payment reform that really get us to that. One is called episode-related care, uh, which again, pays you prospectively for an entire episode of care and everything that happens between office visits um, that we don't get paid for now. Uh, and um, a primary care-led, primary care-driven accountable care organization. Um, the other thing is, you know, you can make it less frightening. What we haven't put on the table and talked about is a blended payment model that would allow you to have and retain some fee-for-service component that um, people feel more comfortable with, but it has to be accompanied by a robust, appropriate quality payment and a robust, appropriate care management fee. Um, that basically duplicates what ACOs are trying to do. The problem in Texas is we have minuscule quality payments and we have minuscule, uh, almost laughable um, care management fees. And I would say like with COVID, the first three to four weeks of this uh, event, my office was absolutely inundated with phone calls. We were on, the, I mean, as we'd have four lines busy. As soon as we got off, we were taking other calls. We were doing a lot of education 
we were doing a lot of explanation uh, to patients about their symptoms and whether it could be COVID and it couldn't be COVID. That was not the same as a reimbursable event for telemedicine. It wasn't about their specific concern necessarily, but it took a lot of time, energy, and was really taking care of our patients in a way that was totally uncompensated. And like I said, we did that for a month, uh, you know, in large measure. And now we're, you know, we're still doing that ongoing, um, but particularly in the beginning, and none of that gets um, accounted for as far as taking care of your patient. So what would it take practically to make a switch to prospective payment, a viable option for your practice? I think that that data comes from the comprehensive primary care initiatives that Medicare um, put forward, which were uh, the the key thing with that is they're public and private partnerships, and uh, they are they have to encompass at least sixty percent of the payers in the area. If you don't reach that sixty percent threshold, it, it it's not going to work. Um, and I think our untapped resource is the ERISA plans who are exempted from many of the other insurance rules on a state level uh, because they're federal plans and therefore, you know, are not held to many of the other restrictions. The issue is they are paying for the insurance. It's in their vested interest to both improve um, care for their employees and have a healthier workforce and have less um, absenteeism and presenteeism. And it's in their best interest to, um, be as cost effective as they can. There is no reason that they could not urgently adopt this model. There are computer systems in place that can um, uh, figure out how to pay correctly under that, even if you keep a fee-for-service chassis, or chassis um, which we haven't had in the past. And um, it would be something that could be done urgently, overnight, and have a tremendous impact. And one of my greatest frustrations is um, that hospital systems have not gone to adopting this model. And they are reticent to even discuss increasing under fee-for-service um, a percentage, an increased payment percentage of their premium dollar to go to primary care. When the data is that hospital employees actually are very high utilizers of medical care and their costs are often very high, um, and and they benefit from having a robust primary care workforce who's going to be sending their patients to the specialists and using the hospital and the facilities they have to offer. It just it just really makes no sense to me. That really raises the question of the power of employers in general, doesn't it? In uh, in bringing about this sort of change. Right. Well, I mean, I think the other the other question is, you know, will this crisis uh, generate more of a discussion about should your insurance be tied to your employer, period? And if your insurance is tied to you as an individual and you have choices and we make it sort of um, where we can um, do direct primary care with an insurance wraparound that would cover things beyond what are done in the uh, primary care office, that actually makes a tremendous amount of sense. From your perspective on the American Academy of Family Physicians Board of Directors, uh, would you tell us what the national organization has been doing on the payment reform front? Well, 
Um, many people may not be aware, but we actually did submit, the AFP submitted to Medicare two years ago, um, a blended payment model for Medicare and um, and actually got that to go forward. But it has not been funded, essentially. But the concept was put forward as an alternative. That was huge. It was a work done wholly within the academy that was like a five-year uh, project. Right now, we are one of the lead organizations that have helped uh, do two things. Number one, get Medicare to pay for telemedicine, which it never did previously. The codes have existed, but actually Blue Cross Blue Shield as an employer in Texas had codes, but was not paying at all for telehealth visits prior to the COVID crisis. Um, the uh, Medicare listened. They came out with the codes, but initially they said it had to be a video visit. And it was because of AFP advocacy with other medical organizations that within three days, they reversed that decision and said a regular telephone call could do because we found that up to 40% of our senior or Medicare patients can't use the technology or don't even have uh, a smartphone, which they could do a video visit with. Plus, there are many of our physicians, the 15% of our physicians that practice in rural areas, often the internet is so spotty that that makes it almost impossible for these visits. Um, we have certainly been advocating for the prospective payment that Medicare put forward and continuing to advocate now that they have said that they are potentially reevaluating and not going to do this. I will tell you for my practice, I see that as the next thing that they would decide that they would move forward for the second, third, and fourth quarter with these prospective payments in Medicare. Because without that, again, I have concerns that the the payment system otherwise is going to change rapidly enough. And if you would have ever predicted to me that Medicare, a federal system, uh, government system, would be the most nimble of the of the insurers, um, I would have been very surprised by that. But I mean, I think uh, we we owe them uh, and their leadership, who we who the AFP has been um, talking to for years, trying to change how things are done. Um, you know, we owe them that they're recognizing how essential primary care is. Tom, what about on the Texas front? Uh, we've joined with a number of organizations to pursue uh, a set of policies that we've dubbed the Marshall Plan for Primary Care and the prospective payment plank. I mean, that's the key proposal in the plan. Uh, what kind of traction uh, is it getting? What kind of traction do you see prospective payment getting? Yeah, I think there's a, a broad recognition of uh, one, the failure that fee-for-service has had on, on primary care practices. Two, that there needs to be a new and better way forward. Um, and I think that the employers are doubling down, frankly, on what they want and expect out of a high-performing uh, system. We've been in a lot of uh, very deep conversations with the uh, groups like the uh, National Alliance for Healthcare Purchasers, which represents 42 million um, uh, insured um, uh, patients, uh, the employers that that, that pro provide that insurance. Uh, we are meeting next week uh, with a broad-based group to look at doing an 1135 waiver um, to create a multi-payer um, uh, uh, a multi-payer program where you could align Medicare, Medicaid, um, commercial insurance around a different um, uh, way of valuing uh, primary care. Uh, we're also having conversations with employers about 
just pulling primary care out of the insurance stack and paying it directly. Uh, and there's a lot of good evidence coming out that that shows that that there's real value there um, and that the money that you would be spending on that direct contract, um, you know, really uh, more than pays for itself uh, uh, over time in terms of decreased uh, emergency room utilization, decreased hospitalization, decreased um, specialty care, uh, because you're giving the primary care physician the tools and the time to manage that patient's care through the, the continuum of, um, uh, of either the problem um, uh, or the, the, the acute illness. Well, I just, when I'm hearing um, uh, Tom talk, it brings to mind the fact that, you know, specialists, our specialty colleagues and hospitals should not be afraid of this because the, the assumption is there will, um, that they're going to have a facility and not have as many beds filled. And the realistic uh, approach is if you do this, what's going to happen is you will have more bed availability for elective procedures, which can be, uh, again, absolutely appropriate and uh, is where people tend to, um, you know, have the biggest uh, margin in, in a sense. And the specialists can then focus on doing the care that is within their field that they love to do, which is why they chose it, and be able to do the procedures. And again, they don't have to be afraid of it and they don't have to be worried that they should try and employ uh, um healthcare extenders so that they can manage blood pressure and things that should appropriately be managed in the primary care office. Well, Dr. Swigler, thank you so much for joining us today. This is, I, this has been really a, a, a good discussion. I think it's a discussion that we need to have. Absolutely. I'm, I'm thrilled that we're getting to the point. My biggest disappointment is out of this crisis. Um, if we don't come forward with some sort of other valuation for primary care other than fee for service, um, it will, it be, it will be a real tragedy. Yeah, indeed. Well, thank you. Thank you for, for joining us. Thank you. And Tom, thanks as always. I appreciate all your hard work, Jonathan. <laughs> well, that's all for this episode. Thanks again to Dr. Erica Swegler from right here in Austin. Thanks also to Tom Banning and to the team at TAFP for making all of this happen. We'll be back with more shows soon, so subscribe through Apple Podcasts or Stitcher or wherever you get your podcasts. You can email the show at jnelson at tafp.org and visit us online at www.tafp.org. Thanks for listening, everyone. I'm Jonathan Nelson for the Texas Academy of Family Physicians, and this has been Texas Family Doc Talk. Mm-hmm.